my first image of childbirth was traumatizing. And I'm not sure I've ever gotten over it. If you were educated in the United States around the same time that I was, you probably know what did it for me. I was in sex ed, and we were watching The Miracle of Life. I've since learned that The Miracle of Life is actually an incredible science documentary. It was made for Nova on PBS and used the most cutting-edge endoscopic and microscopic technology available in the 1980s to actually film, like, ovulation and sperm release and cell division in real time, inside real bodies. It won a gazillion awards, including an Emmy and a Peabody, and it's apparently the most watched Nova documentary ever made. So this should be the moment that I tell you that it had a lasting impact on me as a science communicator. Well, it did have a lasting impact. In my impressionable 13-year-old brain, it made the idea of childbirth horrifying. It had taken us a few days to get through the movie, and we were finally in the home stretch. The cell had turned into an embryo and then a fetus, and the mother was about to go into labor. Other kids had warned us that it was going to be hard to watch. I still remember the head. A softball-sized orb of black hair squeezing out of an impossibly tiny opening. The anguish on the mother's face. The random bursts of fluids. It felt like the climax of a horror movie, and I can't remember whether I closed my eyes or not. This should be the moment where I laugh and say how much I've matured since then, and I now see birth for the beautiful act it really is. But your first glimpse of childbirth isn't like your first taste of coffee or the first time you find out people actually kiss each other, ew. Those are things that you gradually become accustomed to, and even want, because you get more experience with them over the years. And if I lived hundreds of years ago, I would probably have witnessed dozens of births by now. Women had their babies at home in the presence of other women, both trained women, like midwives, and their family and friends. Birth would probably be just another bodily function to me. But because I live in the 21st century, the birth depicted in that 1980s documentary is still the only one I've ever seen. Sure, maybe if I had older sisters or if my closest friends were more into having babies, I might have seen one or two. But still, nowhere near as many as women in centuries past. Today, we keep childbirth at a distance. It's hidden and sanitized and medicalized in sterile hospital rooms. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's definitely more sanitary than it was in days of old. And if a mother has a high-risk birth, being surrounded by doctors means she and her baby are a lot more likely to survive. I mean, the maternal death rate has plummeted since we started putting childbirth in hospitals. But keeping childbirth hidden away does damage, too. Women rarely learn about the ugly details of pregnancy and labor until they're about to experience it themselves. And by then, it's kind of too late. Men don't get the experience they need to support the women around them. And society doesn't understand what's normal, so they harshly judge new mothers for what they don't understand. And as a result, our taboos may be making childbirth more dangerous. 
I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, a podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask. No matter whether you do it in a maternity ward or a birthing pool, childbirth is difficult. And humans have it the worst of any other mammal. The human pelvis is different than other mammals. And that's because we walk upright. If you compare our pelvis to the pelvis of other primates, you know, we are built to support walking on two legs. And yet we have also evolved to have, you know, big brains. We're smart mammals. And so that combination of a more narrow pelvis and a bigger head means there's not a lot of room for error. That's Tina Cassidy. She's a former journalist who writes about women and culture and is now the chief marketing officer at GBH in Boston, which is the largest producer of content for PBS. And very importantly, she's the author of the book Birth, The Surprising History of How We Are Born. And it also means that the baby has to do sort of a pirouette as it makes its way down the birth canal. That's different from, let's say, like a howler monkey, which can give birth in about two minutes and the baby just drops down the chute and comes out face up. And the mother can literally pick up the baby (laughs) and give it a kiss on the lips without, you know, having to twist or turn or have anything else significant happen there. So you know, our birds are much more complicated than other mammals, and we're the only mammal that needs assistance to give birth. Part of that is psychological. Uh, you know, there's this hormonal aspect where if we are afraid or if we know that something could go wrong, the hormonal cocktail in our body changes. You know, we get a sort of a surge of adrenaline that can shut down labor. So we instinctively seek out support just to have people who we love or trust or we know who, um, you know, are there to support us during birth. Studies have shown that having that kind of support during birth makes it less painful. It keeps the oxytocin flowing, which keeps your contractions going strong and, and makes for a shorter labor as well. Um, you know, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that contribute to how we give birth. It's not just where it happens, but also who's there and how the mother is feeling sort of psychologically or, you know, in terms of the support at that time. For a long time, the leading theory about why childbirth is so hard for humans went like this. Millions of years ago, our hominin ancestors began to walk upright. Evolution high score! They also began to develop ever larger brains. Triple points! And then the humans with uteruses were like, hold up. 
I can't have narrow hips for walking upright and give birth to big brained babies. And evolution was like, eh, I don't know, man. I gotta go teach some spiders how to knit. Figure it out. This idea is known as the obstetric dilemma. And recent research has found some big holes in the theory. For one thing, the obstetric dilemma suggests that this catch-22 between good hips for walking and good brains for jeopardy is the reason our babies don't come out as developed as other mammals. I mean, think about baby deer. Sure, they're all cute and wobbly as they try to walk, but human babies can't even hold their dang heads up for the first six months. No contest. Basically, we let our babies out before their brains can finish growing. But actually, we have longer pregnancies than other primates, and we give birth to babies with bigger brains relative to body size. And what's more, studies have found that humans can have much larger pelvises without sacrificing their ability to walk. So researcher Holly Dunsworth has another theory. It's all about energy. Basically, pregnancy requires so much energy to support the growing baby that by the end, we're all tapped out. We give birth to underdeveloped babies because our bodies just can't fuel them any longer. But here's the really messed up part. Scientists think birth was actually easier for our ancient ancestors. There aren't a lot of baby skeletons in the fossil record from back in our early hunter-gatherer days but they increased when humans transitioned to an agricultural lifestyle. And what do farmers eat more of than hunter-gatherers? Any fan of the paleo diet can tell you. Carbs. This new diet led to smaller people and fatter babies, which is a recipe for obstetrical disaster. And babies today are just getting bigger. In the last few decades, there's been a 15 to 25% increase in babies weighing more than 4,000 grams, or 8 pounds 13 ounces. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. How did women give birth back in those early days? Usually, they did it surrounded by other women. Uh, midwives, going back millennia, would be mothers, sisters, other women from the village who had given birth, women who just had practical experience, lived experience uh, with childbirth. And then over time, it became more of a professional obligation, you know, not even licensed per se, but, you know, there was always a village midwife. Um, and again, this is true almost anywhere on the earth. There is only, you know, one or two cultures that I've been able to find where a woman would give birth on her own, uh, but it's very rare. And so almost to the point where it's clear that, you know, there are other factors involved that drive women to be supported during childbirth. And so What's fascinating is why men suddenly became part of the childbirth scene in, let's say, the last half of the 20th century. And it's really because birth had moved from the home to the hospital about a century ago. In fact, midwives are so intertwined with the history of obstetrics that the word obstetrics itself comes from the Latin word for midwife. Instruments like forceps and even procedures like the C-section have been around since long before obstetrics became a medical profession, but they were only used in emergencies, like to remove a stillborn or to adjust a breech so the baby could be delivered normally. Normal births were exclusively the department of midwives. 
But as accoucheurs or man midwives developed their craft over the centuries, they started to push out the women who had traditionally delivered babies. And since men had more access to education than women did, their advantage only grew. The origins of obstetrics goes back about 500 years to barber surgeons. This is back in in the UK, and these were men who had access to licenses that would allow them to use tools. Um, You know, obviously they started out as barbers and then as surgeons. And so part of that meant the advent of forceps. So it was only these men who had forceps, which were considered sort of the magical childbirth tool. But of course, as you might imagine, if you don't know what you're doing with the forceps, um, even though you charge a high rate to use them, uh, damage could be done to both the mother and the baby. You could introduce infections and, and so forth. And so, you know, the technology was perhaps more advanced or also more barbaric than the science at that time. We'll come back to the medical story of pregnancy. But first, I want to just talk basics. Because pregnancy is weird and honestly kind of terrifying. A lot of bizarre stuff happens to your body when you're pregnant. What happens to a woman's body when she's pregnant especially near the end of her pregnancy. I mean, you know, you you get bigger, tired, uncomfortable, your ligaments stretch out. You have all of these hormones racing through your body. The baby drops into the pelvis. Uh, You look, feel and walk differently. And towards the end, sleep gets lighter and more impossible. Your heart gets bigger and your blood volume increases by up to 50%. Your feet get bigger, too. Because your ligaments stretch out, your joints loosen, which is why it is really important to give up your seat to pregnant people on public transit. Hormonal changes disrupt your sense of taste and smell, which can make certain smells off-putting and give you weird food preferences. You can get thicker, shinier hair on your head, but also on your back, face, and stomach. It's a lot. Weird stuff starts happening even early on in the pregnancy. In the first trimester, you might get waves of nausea. It's popularly known as morning sickness, but that nausea can happen at any time, especially because the sense of smell is also more sensitive during the first trimester. You might get heartburn. You have to pee more often, and you get constipated. And many pregnant people feel incredibly tired. They sleep longer and go to work fatigued. And this is all at a time when etiquette dictates that you keep your pregnancy a secret. Around 80% of miscarriages happen during the first trimester. So the logic is that you shouldn't tell anyone until you're sure you won't lose the baby. Which sucks. It means that the 10 to 15% of pregnancies that end in miscarriage require the parents to mourn in secret. If there's one taboo we all decide to banish after this, Make it that one. It's heartbreaking. But okay, if everything goes according to plan, you carry the pregnancy to term, and you finally go into labor, here's what goes down. First, there's the mucus plug that gradually comes out of the cervix. Movies would have you believe that the first thing that happens is that your water breaks, but that's just because a main character saying, I think my mucus plug is coming out, doesn't really have the vibe directors are going for, you know? And even the water breaking isn't really how it's depicted on screen. 
It's often just a little trickle of fluid, not the big water balloon burst we're all familiar with. As all of this is going down, hormones start to soften the cervix and bring on the first contractions. Those early contractions are like a garage door opener. They help to dilate the cervix to give the baby an opening to come out. Later contractions guide the baby down into the vagina so that it can come out into the world. This is the part that involves the pushing and moaning and panting. And again, Hollywood would have you believe that most women scream during labor, but it's actually pretty rare. And then it happens. That great big head comes out of that itty bitty opening. As a person who has never, never given birth, what do you think is the most surprising thing that happens? <laughs> that the baby can come out the way it does. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that is just, uh, it's just, you can't even believe it. Um, even when it happens to you, you're like, no, that did not just happen. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, that's what makes it so miraculous, right? But just the the moment it's over, you know, you're just filled with joy. And, you know, it's a very common thing for, for moms to talk about that sort of pregnancy amnesia where, you know, while you're pregnant, you're so uncomfortable, you might be miserable and, you know, the birth might be really hard. And, and then you just fall in love with your baby so much. You're like, oh yeah, that was great. Let's do it again. You know, there's something really uh, evolutionary about that, that the way your body can kind of play tricks on you like that. It's amazing. And if this were a movie, that's where it would end. Doctors hand the parents the baby, they swaddle it and gaze into its eyes and at each other. Roll credits. But no, we're not done yet. You know, it's all about getting the baby out and then the baby comes out. And if you've had a vaginal birth, you know, you're like, you're all excited, but then you realize you actually have to give birth to the placenta next. And that can be just as painful and take longer than you think it might. I know in the movies, it seems like, you know, the baby's out and they just cut the cord and then you're done. But the other half of that, what's on the other side of that cord still has to come out and it can be, you know, pretty good sized organ. And, uh, you know, so that's that's kind of a bummer a little thing that happens at the very end where you're just like, oh, P.S. If you want to hear all about why some women save the placenta to eat later, check out the cannibalism episode. It's a doozy. So with all this myth busting, it begs the question, how painful is childbirth really? Well, it may be more painful than it needs to be because we're mammals. And because we have this fight or flight reflex, when we go to give birth, you know, we have this hormonal surge where, you know, we want to be in a safe, quiet, protected space. And if we are not feeling like we're in a safe, quiet, protected space, again, it, it messes with our body chemistry and that fight or flight reflex can kick in and it can actually slow down or stop labor altogether. Uh, there have been, you know, lots of studies done, you know, with other mammals that show this to be the case. So you can imagine if you're maybe a first time mom and you you don't have a supportive crew with you following you into the hospital and suddenly you're surrounded by strangers you might not even have your typical ob on call that night 
and you've got, you know, bright lights and residents coming in and, you know, a different nurse every hour. Uh, that doesn't work for every woman. And so slowing down labor can also make it more painful and also frankly you know more dangerous for the mom and the baby so you never know how a mother's going to react and then there are you know if if the hospital staff encourages you to get in bed and lay down because they want to sort of hook you up to an IV in case you need a C-section or put a belly strap on to check the baby's heart rate. You know, all of these things can restrict movement that can lead to an uncomfortable or more painful position and, and so forth. So these are often called iatrogenic responses so that like the, the things that the hospital staff might be doing to help is actually having a negative impact. You know, so that doesn't happen for all moms, but some, you know, some might really be uncomfortable there and it kind of comes out in the birth, if you will. But it's not just about the emotional discomfort of the hospital. Well, the worst position to be in is on your back on a bed <laughs> because the way that your pelvis is structured, the baby actually has to fight gravity to come up and out of the pelvis. So, uh, you know, the reason why that happens, to be perfectly frank, is because, you know, again, if we roll back the tape to when women first started going to hospitals and, you know, men were there to deliver the bed was positioned at a height that was comfortable for the doctor and uh, you know, it could be well lit and draped and, and so forth. You know, if tools needed to be used, uh, there was easy access and so forth. So it's just become sort of the default position. Uh, but I can tell you being on your hands and knees allows your pelvis to open much more and that can also relieve pain. Uh, so that the baby's not scraping on the mother's spine as it's trying to make its way out, out of the birth canal. You know, certainly being in, in water is another option for some women that relieves the, the sort of tug of gravity and can let the mom sort of sit on her knees for a longer period of time as well. I think just movement generally can be helpful because it allows the mother to work with her own body and relative to where the, the baby is um, during the birth process as well. So that can speed things up, but also enable her to get into another position that that will help speed the birth. Traditionally, a birth stool, you know, in many cultures around the world uh, throughout time was a very common instrument, if you will. Um, it's basically allows the mother to be in the squatting position. So the pelvis is, is as open as it can be. And uh, a midwife would still be able to help catch the baby. I'm I, I hate to be crude right now, but I'm imagining like a squatty potty. Is that sort of the same deal? Pretty much. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's usually like a three legged stool, sort of U shaped. And, um, you know, so that the, the mom would sort of sit on the edge of it, but her her knees can be out towards the edges of the stool. And again, you know, the pelvis is open and there's room for a midwife to maneuver. I have since looked at birthing stools on the internet. No big deal. And they're less like a squatty potty and more like uh, an adult-sized potty chair without the bowl. Still not an image I wanted to bring into the miracle of childbirth, but what are you going to do? Anyway, the benefit of giving birth in a hospital is all that pain relief at your disposal, right? Eh, except that can pose its own challenges. Most hospital births expect 
the woman to have some kind of pain relief. But I, I think that, you know, if you're giving birth in the hospital with all of these other systematic protocols in place, birth is more likely to be painful and therefore you need the pain relief. So it, it kind of becomes this cascade of, of issues. I've had an, an epidural and a C-section, and I've also had a home birth uh, that has you know, supported by midwives and um, with with no pain relief and, and the home birth in uh, a tub of water was much less painful and faster than the hospital birth with an epidural that ended in a C-section. So I think, you know, you can't necessarily just assume all births are painful. It can also depend on the position of the baby. Is the baby badly positioned and not quite ready to start the birth? You know, or have you been induced? That can also be uh, incredibly painful and require um, anesthetics. So it really depends on the circumstance. Overall, pain relief is safe, but it's not necessarily without consequences. It means that you can't, if you have an epidural, for example, it means you're probably on your back, unable to walk in a hospital bed, which can mean that for some women, birth could be longer and uh, it could also stall birth and, and lead to a C-section. So again, uh, nothing is without consequences and it's different for every mother. Okay, so what if you can just bypass a vaginal birth altogether and opt for a C-section? Celebrities do it all the time. And like I said before, the C-section is even older than the science of obstetrics. C-sections have happened throughout history. They they got its name uh, during you know the Roman Empire. If it was believed that a woman was going to die in childbirth, then they would cut the baby out so that the baby could be baptized, um, so that you know the baby wouldn't die and and so forth. Or even if the baby were going to die, at least they could be baptized. So it was a Roman Catholic response to childbirth, uh, and you know it's a it's a surgical procedure that's been that has evolved over time today in the u.s about 32 percent of women give birth by c-section so you know nearly a third of all births happen that way and the world health organization said has said for decades that the right level of c-section in an industrialized country should be closer to 10 to 15 percent so we are way off the charts high in terms of the number of c-sections that we have so what that tells us is that probably at least half of the women who have a C-section don't need it. They might've thought they needed it or their doctor might've thought they needed it. But you know, if you look at sort of global statistics and healthy outcomes, they really probably didn't. So, you know, you might say, well, who, you know, what does that matter as long as the baby was healthy? Well, how a woman gives birth actually does matter. It matters to her. It matters to the baby psychologically, emotionally, as well as physically. You know, a C-section is a major abdominal surgery. And anytime you can avoid having surgery, you should. Um, there are always com more complications introduced by having a C-section. It can complicate future pregnancies. You know, it can introduce early problems with the newborn, whether, you know, they might have trouble latching on to breastfeed because they were affected by the anesthetic or any number of things. It's best to avoid it if you don't need it. That said, 
you know, a C-section can absolutely be a life-saving surgery for a mom or baby that, that really does need it. So where do you draw the line? You know, when things are happening quickly uh, in a birth room and we obviously live in a litigious society, doctors often default to doing a C-section. They There's this sort of saying in maternity units that you get sued for the C-sections you don't do, not for the ones that you do do. Uh, and so you can see that there's sort of this culture of, you know, defaulting to a C-section that has evolved. And, and it's really unfortunate. You know, many hospitals have been trying to get their C-section rates under control for a couple decades now, and it's been really hard. I mean, it, it actually hasn't happened. So there's much more progress that needs to be made in that department. And some women will actually elect for a C-section, right? What What are the reasons that they'll do that? And maybe what are the drawbacks? Yeah, there are women who are just really afraid of childbirth. And, you know, if, if that is their choice to have a C-section, as long as they know, you know, the, the benefits and the risks, that is their choice. But just to do it because you're afraid of giving birth vaginally, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be my option. You know, I think that we should also think about why we have also created a culture of fear around childbirth that has put women in that situation to think that having surgery is is better. Now, there might be other medical conditions going on where, you know, it, it does actually make sense for a C-section to be a safer option. Um, you know, but I, I do think that the number of elective C-sections on the on the mother's part is it's not that high of a number. Of course, you know, you also hear cases of, of doctors who are, you know, trying to get a bunch of births in before he goes on vacation. Um, and so, you know, he'll say, you want to schedule a C-section? Are you getting you know, tired of carrying this baby? There are lots of women who can easily fall prey to that uh, in their last trimester because you know, it's really tough at the end, especially if you've blown past your, your due date, which is not something written in stone. You know, that's just sort of an estimate as to when your body would give birth. But Every baby comes on its own timetable as well. One thing many people do to avoid being pressured into a C-section is opt for giving birth at home. And while you might think a home birth is always riskier than giving birth in a hospital, that's not necessarily the case. There have been many large scale studies of this. And for low risk moms, home births are actually safer than a hospital birth for the reasons that I just outlined. And I know many people think that that doesn't make sense. But if you are a healthy mom carrying a healthy baby and you are well supported by a trained midwife, uh, you're going to have a fast, easy, less painful birth at home than if you were to go to a hospital. And it also costs less, too. <laughs> so there are a lot of benefits all around. Studies comparing home births to hospital births are really hard to do. Home birth records are spotty, and often the hospital births were already some of the higher risk births to begin with. But from what we've got, this does seem to be the case. Except there's a catch. Home births are about as safe or safer as hospital births in pretty much every developed country, except the United States. And that's because in other countries, midwives are integrated in the healthcare system. Those countries have set risk factors like age and obesity that determine whether you're too high risk for a home birth. And their midwives are medically trained. In the U.S., we have medically trained midwives, too. 
They're called certified nurse midwives or CNMs. But we also have another type of midwife called certified professional midwives or CPMs. And they have four times the rate of infant mortality as CNMs. But even home births with CNMs have double the infant mortality rate of hospital births. And that's because the U.S. doesn't have those strict universal guidelines about who is and isn't eligible for a home birth. And that's not the only place that the U.S. is lagging behind other developed countries. In the U.S., our maternal mortality rate is 17.4 per 100,000 live births. That is a very high number. It's more than double other developed nations. And New Zealand, for example, has a maternal mortality rate of 1.7 per 100,000. So you can see that's a massive difference uh, mathematically. So it's not birth that's inherently dangerous. It's the system, the way we give birth that is dangerous. And the reason is that in the U.S., or there are many reasons, but among them, uh, in the U.S., OBGYNs are overrepresented in our maternity care, and obstetrics is a surgical specialty. So they are overrepresented in maternity care relative to midwives, and there's an overall shortage of maternity care providers, both OBGYNs and midwives, relative to the number of births that we have. In most other countries, midwives outnumber uh, obstetricians by several fold, and primary care also plays a central role in the health system. Our taboos around childbirth only serve to exacerbate the fear and stigmas we have about it. But obviously, the taboos aren't all to blame. The healthcare system makes childbirth more risky. And if we can improve it, say by making healthcare more accessible, reducing structural racism and addressing the other ways that a person's place in society affects their health, and making sure that everyone all over the country can get excellent maternity care, then maybe we won't fear childbirth anymore. And I can watch the miracle of life in peace. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Big thanks to Tina Cassidy. Her book is Birth, The Surprising History of How We Are Born. And you can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. There's an audiobook version, too. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot. And if you've got a topic you think I should cover on a future show, email me at ashley at tabooscience.show. Next episode, we're talking about what happens when you die. It's actually a lot more sentimental than you think. Stay tuned. <laughs>